college, you're doing announcements next week. So there you go. Okay, so we're going to have a little fun here at the start of this this service. Here we're playing a game called Who Am I? And you have to be 12 or younger to answer. Okay, Who Am I? I fed 5,000 people with seven loaves and two fish. Who am I? Yes. Jesus. All right. Valuable cash prizes are to be won. There you go, Lisa. But once you answer, you can't answer again. Okay? I made mud, dirt into mud by spitting on it. I rubbed it on a blind man's eyes, and then he could see me. Yes, over here. Well, I got the wrong brother. <laughs> Any brother? Decide. Jesus! All right. Valuable cash prizes to be won, Josiah. Here you go. Great king of Israel. A great name, Josiah. I made, I gave new meaning to the Passover. Saying, in my body and in my blood, do this remembrance of me. Yes, Cooper. Yes, Jesus. Oh my goodness! Good answer. There you go, Cooper. All right. Who am I? The angel of the Lord told me about my miracle birth and that I'd be set apart for God's use, and God would use me to bring deliverance for my people. Who am I? Yes, it's a letter. What's your name? Zachariah? Zachary. Zachary, well, thanks for playing. The answer is actually no. What you just experienced is a pastoral sucker punch. <laughs> I set you up, Zachary. I set you up. Because if we use the specifics that my birth was told by the angel of the Lord. We're not playing anymore. Sorry about that. Very much, Gibbs. Sorry. Game is over. And I'm going to, this person is going to begin to bring deliverance to his people. If you haven't figured it out, well, it may surprise you who he is. He's known for really other things than his miracle birth, and he's one of the judges. And, uh, but like so many of the judges, his life, and actually his birth, points ultimately to the ultimate judge, to the ultimate deliverer. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's kind of what our focus is going to be about the miracle birth of this baby. So before we dive into God's way, we're reading the book of Judges, chapter 13 today, if you want to crack your Bibles open there. Um, but we're going to pray before we dive in. So Lord Jesus, again, uh, we are so grateful that you've done so many of these things that we, we talked about. You fed the 5,000, you made uh, mud into dirt, uh, dirt in the mud, and, and healed a blind man's eyes. You gave new meaning to the Passover, that we could have life in you and be set free from our sin. And now we pray that you'd help us to see from your word what you have to say to us about the life and the birth of this Old Testament judge that ultimately points 
to who you are as our deliverer. We thank you for your word, and we pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. So last week, we were at the end of Judges chapter 12, and we kind of concluded the life of Jephthah. And God used him to save Israel from a group called the Ammonites. But we also saw he didn't end things too well. As he failed to unite the tribes of Israel because he was given over to his revenge against the Ephraimites. Both sides forgot who they were, and the end result was that 42,000 Ephraimites were trapped and killed on the east side of the Jordan River. And so Jephthah, he had his office of judge for six years. And then the end, after he died at the end of chapter 12, we get three judges who kind of rise up. And we only get a couple sentences. And I won't call them no-name judges because their names are in the Bible. We meet, um, first of all, Ibzan of Bethlehem, verses uh, 8 through 10. And he was seeking to unite the, the people of Israel through marriage. He had 30 sons. And he had 30 daughters. And so he figured, you know, I'm going to unite the tribes. I'm going to name my daughters off to various tribe, tribal leaders and things like that. And I'm going to invite uh, you know, daughters in to become part of my family. And we unite, you know, the people of God through that. He figured that he would get along with all the tribes of Israel if they related to everyone. Obviously, he never went to a family reunion. Then we meet Aaron of Zebulun in verse 11. And he just kind of showed up. But his presence brought in. He was just doing his job as a judge. And he, he had uh, his office for 10 years. And then he died. Then Abdon of Hillel, verses uh, 13 through 15. And he had unification through multiplication and mobility. He had 30 sons and 30 grandsons who he placed on donkeys, 70 donkeys, and they kind of rode around Israel and were kind of the, you know, mobile sheriff kind of a guy. You know, they were showing up, hey, I'm here in, um, in the name of my grandfather, Abdon of Hillel. Um, 70 donkeys, they must have been Democrats, I don't know. Just kidding. I'm not political, just... Keep going, I'm trying to be funny. All right. Um, but he doesn't try to make a franchise. You know, we're going to, uh, hey, our family's going to help lead the country. But Henry is in, in power for eight years. And with efforts of these three judges, they only brought outward peace in Israel for 25 years. And then unfortunately, after the death of this last judge, the people of God returned to a familiar pattern. They kind of return to their old ways. And the death of the judge and the people forget that they are the Lord's people. And they rebel against him. And so here's where we pick up the story in Judges chapter 13, verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Now that phrase, they did evil in the sight of the Lord, 
It's been used previously six times already in the book of Judges. And it was inconsistent. God's people, you know, they start to worship the gods of the nations around them. In this particular situation, it's the Philistines who are on the west coast. They were, they were actually people that moved into the area, but I'm not going to give a whole lot of etymology about them. But they start to worship their gods, and they start to act like these people. Instead of like the people of the Lord who are shaped by who God is, they're being shaped by who the people are and their gods. And so God allows oppression. Uh, it, gets, it gets Israel's attention. Israel's attention. They realize you know, we're in the wrong Lord. We, we shun you. And they cry out and they repent. And the Lord raises up a deliverer. And God gives them a deliverer. And he or she does deliver them. And then they forget and it starts all over again. It's kind of a crazy cycle. Over and over again. But what's disturbing about this particular verse, though, here? Is that they come under the oppression of the Philistines for 40 years. But there's no crying out. There's no, you know what? This is not what God intended. We're messed up. And they're not crying out. They don't. It's, it's like they don't even realize that they're in enslavement. They don't even realize they're in adultery. This is becoming the norm of their lives. And so what we see is that people unaware of their enslavement in verse 1. They're so cozy with the culture of the Philistines that they can't even see it. Think about this. If you were born... Let's say mid eighties, no, excuse me, mid mid nineties. To this day, somewhere between to this day, you know something's true about you that's not true for me. You have never not known the internet. You have never not known cell phones in your life. They're just a part of your life. It's like breathing, and if that was taken away from you, it you might feel like you're having your breath taken away. It might be true for many of us, actually, in this room. Maybe we become too dependent upon that. But this is this is what I'm talking about. You know, if 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 40 years being the Philistines is what's happening here, you know, we're halfway there as far as where we're at. You know, it's 2021. Never not known this. They've never not known the influence of the Philistines. They've never not known this ungodly presence. And it really has caused them to go the way of their flesh. Again, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then the, the two, it says this two times in the book of Judges, kind of as a, a conclusion of, of what goes on in this book. In, in, ch- in chapter 17, verse 6, and 21, verse 25, it says, there was no king in the land, and Everyone did was right in their own eyes. This is the blindness that's kind of pervaded over the people. Everyone is doing right in their own eyes, and they can't even fully see it. The Lord stops being the standard, stops being the source for what's right, for what's wrong. And they look to themselves. The Philistines had a whole slew of things that they employed. Child sacrifice, sexual degradation, 
prostitution worship, all sorts of forms. Uh, exploitation of the weak, might, might makes right. Worship of false gods, worshiping the creation rather than the creator. And a quid pro quo relationship with God. God, if I give you the right sacrifice, you need to give me what I want. And the people of God are being sucked into this. Is it much different than where we're at today as a society? Is it much different? As you look around, the over-sexualization of everything, it's scandalous that the German Olympic team puts on unitards because they're being over-sexualized. We've lost sight of the way we have no boundaries or barriers. We worship our own creation. We're having a hard time of getting a sense of what's right and what's wrong because we don't think God figures into the equation wrong. We know that something's wrong, but we can't bring ourselves to think that God might have something to say about that. It might not be true in this room, but it is outside of our doors. And, you know, let's face it, folks, some of us are being sucked into this world. When I talked about having the internet and, and cell phone taken away, some of your heart started pounding a little deeper, you know? We're being, we're being conformed sometimes to this world. We need to look at that. Are we blind to our own bondage, our own sin? And, and I hope, I don't say as I say these things, I don't sound like this cranky old man, like, it's not like the good old days. You know, I'm not trying to say that. Okay, because the good old days were not always so good. Um, but my point is this. After more than 2,000 years, after our Lord Jesus came, we still need a Savior. Education is not going to save us. Technology is going to save us. A new system is not going to save us because the problem is not out there. It's in here. It's the heart. It was true then, it's true now. But praise God, he steps in. You see, the people don't cry out, but God still graciously steps in. And what we see is a promise of a set-apart Savior to deliver them. And I'm telling you, from this point on, folks, I'm going to kind of read through the chapter. And, and there's so many... Um, Inlands I could take, but really it's going to be more of a 35,000 foot view to see the big picture. But it says this in verse 2 A certain man of Zorah, named Manoah, from the clan of the Danites, the word Dan means judge, uh, so it's fitting, it seems like, he had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth, and the angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are barren and childless. But you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Again, God intervenes. And God is the God of the impossible. He comes to this barren couple. And remember, there is no more clinic of fertility here. There's no place that you can go to have this dealt with. You're either having children or you're not. And this couple, I'm sure, felt like they were stuck. Stuck in their disgrace. Because if your wife couldn't have a child, well, what good was she? 
There was no heir for Manoah. And they also stuck in their circumstances. They're under the Philistine rule. Maybe they remember the time where they didn't rule, where they didn't have influence. So it's a bit of a, a sticky situation. It's a tough situation. You know, for us, it's easy to get angry and to get bitter and to turn our back on God when things are hard, when life is tough. But again, there's nothing that's impossible for God. And he reveals that he's going to give this barren couple a child. Something they were not able to do themselves. He's going to give them a child. And you know, this is not God's first radio with this type of matter. Going back to Father Abraham and Sarah, right? <laughs> They're about 100 years old before they can have their first natural child, Isaac. That child of promise who would be the seed for whom God would bring the Messiah. Also, Hannah and Elkanah would bring forth a son later on, a son named Samuel, who would be the one who would rebuke God's high priest's family, but also the name two of God's first kings for Israel. So there's a connection here with that. You've got Zacharias and Elizabeth in the beginning of Luke chapter 2, a priest faithful unto God and his wife who can't have children. And yet in the old age, God sends him Gabriel. Not the angel of the Lord, Gabriel. Get that right. Sends them Gabriel to tell them, you're going to have the messenger, the herald of the Messiah. You're going to be the one speaking in a voice in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. And then ultimately our Lord Jesus Christ, who Gabriel again comes to marry a teenager who's got a biology problem. She's not married. She's not having sexual relations with anyone. And yet God says, and the angel says to her, you're going to bear the Son of God. And it won't come from a man. It'll come from the seed of the Holy Spirit. All I'm saying is that God is in the business of doing the impossible. And do you feel stuck? Do you feel entrapped right now? And do you feel your heart getting bitter? This might be an opportunity to turn to the Lord and say, Lord, how is it that you want to flip the script? How is it that you want to do something different than where I'm at right now? And he does. He does. Okay, we need to continue on here. Let me see verse 4. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head has never been touched by a razor, because the boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God from, from the womb, and he will take the lead, or begin, to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. God is going to use this child to start to bring deliverance to Israel from the Philistines. Israel is heading down a path of self-destruction. This child will start to bring them back. He's not going to bring it to finish. Ultimately, that's going to be brought by King David a little bit later, the son of Jesse. 
And again, Judges is pointing towards the monarchy. But God is going to start with this child. And he only needs one. He only needs one. As flawed as he actually turns out to be. And he's going to be a Nazarite. Now, if you've been reading through the Old Testament, especially in Numbers chapter 6, you find out about what a Nazarite is. It's a person who comes before the Lord and they set themselves apart. And there's some things that they do or don't do. For that period, they don't cut their hair. For that period, they don't eat anything or drink anything that comes from the grapevine. And they won't drink any uh, fermented drink. And they won't touch anything that's unclean, that is a dead body, or eat anything that's unclean. And if they do, they've got to start all over again. But it's for a period where they dedicate themselves to the Lord. I am for the Lord's service in this period. This is a choice that one makes, at least from the Old Testament uh, covenant. And it's for a season. But for this child, it's going to be for his whole life, from birth. Just a thought about this. If you're a follower of Christ, how do you view yourself? How do you view yourself? Do you view yourself as set apart for the Lord because Christ has come into your life and changed you and given you a new identity? And you can serve Him and have be part of His redemptive plan for men and women. Or do you kind of be like, hey, that's good, Jesus. Thanks for coming to my life. Now I'm going to live the rest of my life. I'm going to do my own thing because you're giving freedom to and He does. But I'm living for me. I'm living for my kingdom. To please myself. And I'm calling the shots. Jesus says, I came to give you life and give it to the full. And I'm going to tell you, if you're living for yourself, you're missing that life. You're missing that life. How would it change if you viewed your life as being set apart for him? Doesn't mean you have to not cut your hair. Doesn't mean you can't drink grape juice. But you're living for him. You're living for him. Verse 6. Then the woman went to her husband and told him, A man of God came to me. He looked like an angel. Very, uh, an angel of God. Very awesome. I didn't ask him where he came from, and he didn't tell me his name. But he said to me, Will you become, he said, Will you become pregnant and have a son? Now then, drink no wine or from any drink, and do not eat anything unclean, because the boy will be in Nazareth of God from the womb until the day of his death. So it's like, hey, you know, your boy's going to be in Nazareth, you can't, you can't violate those things even in utero, okay? Then the man prayed to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord, I beg you, let the man of God you sent uh, come to us again and teach us how to bring with the boy who is to be born. I, I kind of wonder if Manoah was kind of going, that's good, honey. We'll, we'll just confirm that by praying that God would be. I wonder if he even believed her. He, he had to hear and see for himself. So verse 9, God heard Manoah in his grace. He heard Manoah. And the, Lord, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she was out in the field, but her husband Manoah was not with her. The woman heard to tell her husband, He's here. The man who appeared to me the other day. 
Manoah got up and followed his wife. And when he came to the man, he said, Are you the man who talked to my wife? I am, he said. So Manoah asked him, When your words are fulfilled, what is to be the rule that governs the boy's life and work? Somehow you kind of get the sense that Manoah is kind of prodding for more information. Tell me. Because your words are going to come true. What are the rules going to be for his life? He wants information. Tell me how he should live and how we should go from here. And, and the angel of the Lord, he's kind of going, I, I, I kind of already told you. I kind of already gave him some instruction. Verse 13, the angel of the Lord answered, your, mother, your wife must do all that I told her. She must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, nor drink any wine or fermented drink, nor eat anything unclean. She must do anything I have commanded her. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, We would like you to stay until we prepare a young goat for you. So he's kind of trying to obligate him through hospitality. The angel of the Lord said, replied, Even though you detain me, I will not eat any of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord. Now listen to this. Manoah did not realize that it was the angel of the Lord. And we've talked about this earlier, if you've been with us. But we're not sure that we believe this might actually be a pre-incarnate Jesus who is coming and, and telling here what's going on as a representative of his father. And you'll see why I think this a little, a little bit later. Verse 17. Then Manoah inquired of the angel of the Lord, What's your name? So that we may honor you when your word comes true. Again, there's the thought that, well, if I, if I know this person's name, I have some sort of spiritual control. It's very interesting. Uh, we see that in the, in the New Testament. But the angel of the Lord replied, verse 18, Why do you ask my name? It is beyond understanding. Or literally, literally, it is wonderful. You get the sense, you get the sense that Manoah is somehow trying to dicker with this representative, this angel of the Lord. But Manoah, he has no idea who he's addressing. Then Manoah took a young goat together with the green offering and sacrificed it on the, the rock to the Lord. And the Lord did an amazing thing as Manoah and his wife watched. As the flame raised from the altar toward heaven, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame. Seeing this, Manoah and his wife fell to their faces on the ground. And the, and the angel of the Lord did not show himself again to Manoah and his wife. Manoah realized that it was the angel of the Lord. We are doomed to die, he said to his wife. We have seen God. Now, Manoah knew enough from, from his uh, history with, with Moses that no one can see God and live. Exodus 33, 22. But it's interesting, the wife, his wife replies like this, verse 23. His wife answered, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a green offering from our hands, nor show us all these things and told us this. You see, sometimes I think we relate to God completely by the letter of the law. 
we, it's, it's a whole lot of the thing. It's like, man can see God and live. And so we wrapped. They never think of what the heart of God is. That is to restore relationship between him, the holy God, and a people that have sinned against him. That's, that's what he's in the business of doing. That's what he's doing here. The problem is, though, sometimes, that's how we want to relate to God. By the rules. God, just give me the rules. Tell me what i got to do. Spell it out plainly, and, and then I'll do it, we think. And, and then, how I follow those rules, how much you need to bless me. Again, it's kind of a, almost a bargain. We want the rules, but God wants a relationship. He says, no, no, no. We're not doing it like that. I, I am going to reveal myself through my law about who I am. I am holy. There's no one like me. We have to realize that. But I'm here to restore our relationship. And I'm going to do it. You can't do it. You cannot do it. That child that I promised Eve at the end of Genesis 3 the seed that would crush the serpent's head that's going to be my son. That seed that I promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, that would be a son of Isaac, the seed of Isaac, and yet it'll be the son of God. That'll be my son. I have to do it. You see, we want the rules. God wants the relationship. Yeah, and I, I want you to know who I am. I want you to live in accordance with who I am. But it's still dependent upon me. Not upon you. Because I don't want you to put things on autopilot in relating to me. I don't want you to do things like I'm a, a boss or a, a contractor. I'm your father. I'm your maker. I relate to you totally differently. Through a covenant. You know, it's interesting. And I'm glad to be on this side of, of, the, of the cross. But one of the things that happens in the new covenant, not only does Jesus pay for our sin on the cross, but then God sends his Holy Spirit to dwell within us, to live within us. To have a relationship. As I'm asking you to abide well with Jesus every day, I don't want it to be on following the rules and regulations. No, I want it to be, look at my Father, look what the Lord Jesus revealed to me today. To give me life. Are we dickering with God? And how we relate to him sometimes? I thought the rules, God. You'll be blessing. Or it isn't about a relationship. His presence dwelling with us. Because you know what's going to happen to this child? 
Yeah, he's going to keep some rules. Some of them not so well. But the Holy Spirit is going to come upon him and dwell upon it in him. Verse 24. The woman gave birth to the boy and named him Samson. If you didn't know his name, you do now. It's Samson. And he grew and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him while he was in the or he was in the Maya, Dan, between Zorah and Eshtal. So not his father, Manoah, but Maniah, a town in Dan. Again, we're just, we're just scratching the surface. Brother Jim Cleef will start unpacking what his life was like next week. But I don't know about you, but as I read this account, again, it is pointing ultimately toward the Lord Jesus. Huh. A few points I want to send you home with. Number one, the Lord is the Savior, and he has to intervene, right? You've got Mary and his wife, they're barren. And God intervenes in their lives and gives them this son. And he's there to help release God's people from the influence and the domination and the oppression of the Philistines. The Lord Jesus comes in the fullness of time. To his people who are at this point at best uh, ruled by the Roman Empire, wondering what God is going to do, wondering if you know, he's going to come and throw the Romans out, and ultimately God has come to deal not with their circumstances, but with their hearts. And God overcomes the challenge of biology or virginity through the birth, the implanting of the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus Christ. But he intervenes. He's the one who intervenes. Number two, both of these were set aside to serve the Lord. Samson, again, as a Nazarite, his whole life, he never cuts his hair until he has an unfortunate accident with a woman. But Jesus, he set aside as the Holy One of God, as God incarnate, as God's Messiah. God made flesh. And he's better than, than Samson. In the sense that he comes to do his father's will, where Samson sometimes is just doing Samson's will. Number three, both had supernatural gifts or power. Samson had amazing strength. If you don't know that, sorry, spoiler alert. He would be the Olympics handily, very easily. He's able to whip a lion in two of his bare hands, kills a, 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 a thousand. Um, First is the jawbone. He picks up city gates and moves them across up to a hill. And he eventually destroys a temple by pushing its pillars. He has amazing supernatural strength. Probably the first, quote, superhero who had superpowers, if you will. But Jesus, he has the power to heal the blind, the leper, the infirmed. 
He can feed 5,000. He can walk on water. He raises men from the dead, and he ultimately rises from the dead himself. He has power way beyond what Samson could do. And that power still applies to you and me today. And in fact, both came to save and deliver. Samson, he again, it begins with a releasing of the, of the people from the influence of the Philistines. But he ends up being ensnared himself. And ultimately, he's going to be the Savior. Jesus comes to conquer the foes we're able, unable to defeat in ourselves. That is, the sin that dwells within us and death, and he goes to the cross as God's perfect sacrifice to pay our debt. But he also conquers sin and death. He doesn't stay dead. And he gives that life to those of us who put our faith in him. He has saved many women. He is in the process of saving people, and he will save people for himself, those who put their faith in him. And we're being delivered way beyond an impressive force in the Philistines. He gives his everlasting life in himself. Because he has an everlasting life in himself. Hebrews chapter 7 verses 24 through 25 says, Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore he is able to save completely, or to the uttermost, those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. That's the Savior. That's the Savior. That's the deliverer we point to. And again, while Samson points to Jesus as Savior, Jesus will need to be Samson's Savior. You know, in Hebrews chapter 11, it's the famous Hall of Faith chapter, right? And it named off all these Old Testament saints. Well, in verse 32, guess who gets a little shout out? And what more shall I say? I do not have time to talk about Gideon. We've talked about him. Barak, we've talked about him. Samson, Samson, Jephthah, and about David and Samuel and the prophets. And then later on at the end of the same chapter, these all were commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so they're only together. That is in Jesus. With us, would they be made perfect? See, Samson ultimately needed a Savior himself. So again, Samson's gifting is impressive. But I'll tell you what, it's just impressive from this point because it doesn't affect you or me. But Jesus, he is still saving people. He is still changing lives. He is still affecting eternity. And that's where this miracle baby we're looking at today points to an even greater miracle baby that has changed history. That's why we still say B.C. I know some people say B.C.E., but it's B.C. Jesus has divided history. And now it's A.D., the year of our Lord. And we just wait for his return. And so because of that, we are going to remember today. We are going to remember today. We're going to enter into a time of celebration 
of the Lord's Supper. And if you're new to Berean, let me tell you, we practice what we call open communion. That is, if you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're welcome at this table. It's not my table. It's not the table of the Berean Community Church. It's His table. And He invites you here today. So, and if you've not put your faith in Christ, we're so glad you're here for this remembrance. But just pass the elements on. Because if you're taking it, you're, you're doing something that's not true of you. This is for those who have put their faith in Jesus, who have trusted in what he has done in giving himself for us, in his body and his blood. And there are lots of different uh, meanings that we celebrate. But we're going to do this together today. We're going to wait until all have taken the, the bread, have all been served the bread, and then we're going to take together. One of the reasons is to remember, yes, that Jesus offered up his physical body but also to celebrate another reality, that in his body, he has made us one body. And then we're going to take together the cup together, remembering a new covenant in his blood. A new covenant that says, it's not about you being able to keep the rules, it's about the fact that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. But before we approach this, this table, we also want to come truthfully. Confessing our sin and knowing that it was our sin that put him on the cross. And so I just want to read for you from the first letter of, of Corinthians in chapter 11, where Paul gives this instruction. He says, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man, a woman ought to examine themselves before they eat or drink the bread, (coughs) eat eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is not just a snack that we're taking here. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. But when we are being judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So for a few minutes here, um, Eric's going to play some, some instrumental music in the background, and you can just do some business with the Lord. Let him search your heart. Say, Lord, show me where I'm out of sorts with you. And then when he shows that to you, you can take him up on his promise. And if we confess our sin, he is faithful. He is just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all righteousness. And then we can continue on remembering what God has done for us in His Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's commit this time to letting